the Arctic Energy Pivot, EU and Russian Opportunities and Divisions. Interview with Natalie Dobson and Errol Moe, Episode 52. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. This is a special post-COVID episode. I had it. This week, we speak with professors Natalie Dobson and assistant professor at Utrecht University, Department of International and European Law, and Professor Aurel Moe, Senior Research Fellow at the Friedrich Toff Nansen Institute. As usual, I'll keep their long list of individual achievements short, but it's impressive as each is making a significant contribution to understanding relations in the Arctic, and you'll hear about it here. This recording is from an online roundtable discussion held at Central European University in our Energy Policy Research Group. I've edited this discussion for the podcast, and as you'll hear, there's a wealth of information to inform how we understand both the EU's policy perspective towards oil and gas exploration in the Arctic area and Russia's ability to expand their own exploitation of the oil and gas wealth in the region. This discussion goes beyond geopolitical considerations, definitely. It delves into both the legal framing the EU is attempting, it's very interesting, to implement, and also the strategic strategic decision-making done by the Russian state. For the previous episode, uh, I discussed the soft power, hard power. I would suggest to actually listen to that and then frame what's going on in the Arctic region as an extension of the EU's attempt to regulate what goes on in the Arctic. It's really interesting. Okay, but back to what we discuss here. The key topics that are covered in this discussion fall under three broad headings, EU policies, Russian policies, and climate change and the Arctic. And what I lay out here, actually these are the key questions I gave to my students to discuss after the event, but they summarize very nicely what is discussed in this episode. So we have the category of EU policies, and there's three questions here. Why is EU policy towards the Arctic important? How has EU Arctic policy changed over time? It's very interesting. And how does the EU attempt to influence Arctic policy? Then we also have Russian policies that are discussed. What are Russian policies towards oil and gas exploration in the Arctic? What is the impact of LNG on Russian gas policies? And what is the history of foreign investment into the Russian oil and gas sector in the Arctic? All these questions are answered as their main discussion points. And then finally, the third category, this is an overarching one, is climate change and the Arctic. How important is the Arctic to combating climate change? Kind of had to throw that out there. What is the impact of warming climate on oil and gas exploration in the Arctic? And finally, the third question is, should there be a global freeze on oil and gas extraction from the Arctic? In addition to these questions, we have a short discussion about the impact of sanctions and what a war in Ukraine could mean in terms of Western sanctions on the Russian oil sector. So I don't want to be too, like, flashy in the headline, but uh, the discussion we do have about the impact of the 2014 sanctions when Russia invaded Crimea and... Uh, what occurred and how that impacted oil and gas, mainly oil exploration in the Arctic, is interesting. And we have a brief discussion towards the end of the roundtable about what could happen or the impact in the future. 
A final note for regular listeners, though. Yeah, the past few episodes, uh, I've been struggling to get those out. I came down with COVID, and probably along with half the world. So if you haven't gotten it yet, you're going to get it, because I have no idea how I got it. Uh, I think it's because I actually went to work one day. Moving forward, though, I think I'm going to get back on the weekly schedule. This is really good, and I've got a lot of good ones lined up. Just got to get the energy back. And speaking of energy, the intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. And now for this week's episode. I want to welcome everybody. We have a good turnout so far already. 26 participants I see on Zoom. And welcome to Zoom. Um, This is part of the, as I just mentioned, our energy policy research group and also our current topics and energy policy. So for those that are interested, um, I'm going to edit this down and make it part of my podcast I have, the My Energy 2050 podcast. So the I would say all of it will be in, but, but I would say the most relevant um, discussion points will be in that. And um, also, we will have this available um, for the students on, on YouTube on the, on the course website as well, so you can watch it later too. And with that, let me do the introductions, and I'll go in the order that we're going to talk about. Uh, We have Dr. Natalie Dobson. She's an assistant professor at the Department of International and European Law. She's a researcher at Autrich um, Center for Water, Oceans, and Sustainability Law, and also the Netherlands Institute for the Law of the Sea. And you can make any corrections, Natalie, um, before I begin, so thank you. And we also have uh, Ariel Mo. And he's very distinguished, and I'll keep his bio very short, but it's very long, and I would encourage everyone to look at all his publications and research projects on on the topics uh, that he's focused on. So we're very lucky to have both of them. But he's at the Fridtjof Nonsense Institute, and he's a full research professor there. And please, Ariel, as well, please correct me um, on your turn. So with this, I thought... We, there's no particular order, but I thought we would address EU issues first. And so with that, Professor Dobson will present first for about 15, 20 minutes. And then we're going to have time for uh, a few questions from, from students. And then we'll move to the second presentation. And this way, it should give us about a half hour, a good half hour, for a fuller discussion <coughs> at the end. So with that, uh, Natalie, I turn it over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Um, fantastic to be here. Um, I hope that I will have something uh, that will give you food for the discussion and the, the lectures. Uh, the pressure is high now that I understand the, the full implications of today's talk. So having uh, said that, I'm going to uh, share my screen with you and we're going to have a look um, at uh, my take at least on the EU's evolving Arctic strategy. Um, with the question, is it revenge of realpolitik, as was suggested in a report of the European Parliament uh, in 2020. So let's just uh, walk uh, through the EU's Arctic policy. Um, First of all, it's helpful to explain uh, my own personal background. My research focuses on the European Union as a global environmental actor with an emphasis on climate change. When I talk about the EU, I'm coming at it from the Arctic as an example or as an area uh, in which the EU applies its uh, or seeks to apply uh, its values, in particular climate protection, beyond its territory. 
So that does frame somewhat uh, the things that I've decided to highlight and the things that I can talk more about. So if we look at the European Union, it's very keen to profile itself as a global actor, and particularly in the field of environmental protection and the climate. And maybe um, others here can uh, clarify that better than I can, um, but the European Union sort of seeks an identity uh, amidst the very changing geopolitical situation, not itself having, for example, a strong army and heavily relying upon its market and trade. And this is something that we can then see uh, reflected in its policies uh, towards the outside world. We can't understand the EU's newest Arctic strategy, which was published last year in October 2021, without the backdrop of the Green Deal and its Fit for 55 package. So we'll just start there. So in late 2019, the European Union rolled out its extremely ambitious new Green Deal with this aim to become climate neutral by 2050. One cannot jump from 2019 to 2050 climate neutrality without some kind of midway point. So in July 2021, we also saw the Fit for 55 package being rolled out with a host of different measures that would put the EU on track. And in doing so, aim to achieve 55% emission reductions by 2030. The EU is very keen to ensure that its Arctic policy fits under its new green profile, fits within the Green Deal um, as well. And that's something we can clearly see coming back in the policy documents regarding um, its Arctic strategy and use of oil and gas. As a lawyer, I would be remiss if I didn't point out the treaty bases and embedding of the European Union's environmental and climate focus. So we can see it's actually in Article 191 on the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. This is a mandate and it is an objective that will structurally guide and steer EU policy. And that's something we see coming back internally. The EU will say to its member states, we have this mandate. This is why we're going to push the environment. That can be quite relevant in the Arctic context because the EU doesn't necessarily have complete control over what the EU Arctic states are doing in that territory. So we can see a little bit of an internal pull on power as well as an external pull on power. There is also a nice clear basis in public international law, my favorite, uh, for the EU's climate ambitions. I'm thinking here about the Paris Agreement. The EU was also part of the High Ambition Coalition seeking to amp up the ambition that eventually was codified in the Paris Agreement, and it continues to lead the way. Okay, that's very nice. EU, big ambitions, but EU and the Arctic? What exactly is the EU's relationship to the Arctic? Well, it could be argued that the EU is somewhat punching above its weight when it comes with its big Arctic strategies. It talks as though it's a the player in the Arctic, but it's a little bit more fragmented than that. So we can see that it has a limited direct role. It does have EU states that um, have an Arctic territory. I'm thinking about Denmark, Sweden, and Finland. There are also states in the European economic area, Norway and Iceland. Um, but the EU as a whole um, doesn't have 
uh, the participation I think that it would have envisaged. And an interesting side note that you may already be aware of is the EU's TIF with Norway regarding a seal ban that then barred it from having greater participation in the Arctic Council. So you would think that the EU's friends and maybe enemies or you know competitors were clear, but the enemy may be also within when it comes to the EU's role uh, in the Arctic region. The EU has an indirect role, which we can see it taking more responsibility for now in its more recent policy documents. Its indirect role has to do with energy extraction and consumption and transportation through the Arctic, as well as black carbon emissions, which have a greater impact on global warming and other activities such as tourism that will end up harming the Arctic. But while the EU may have these impacts, it has a limited ability to control its member states' energy consumption. So as a lawyer, again, this is something that could come up, Article 194, it cannot affect the member states' right to choose the different sources of energy it wishes to consume, even though the EU has certain consumption targets. So then let's project this and take a look at the EU's Arctic policy more concretely. Well, everybody knows what happens in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic. There is a clear feedback loop between the rise in global temperature and climate change, um, and then the opportunities that are arising in the Arctic. First of all, thaw thawing permafrost, releasing carbon dioxide that affects the whole world, but also that will create new transport routes that will open up new resources for extraction that were not available before. What does the EU do in response to this? Well, I would posit that we can see something of a pivot in EU policy. In fact, the EU only started to develop an Arctic policy in 2008, which is relatively recent, especially for the language that it uses today, as though it's been there for forever. And if we look at the Arctic policy in 2008, climate change was the impetus, but climate protection was not a priority necessarily. In fact, we see that under the heading of um, renewable resources, the EU notes its interest in large untapped hydrocarbon reserves, including those in offshore resources in the EEZ, so the exclusive economic zones of Arctic states. The EU states this could contribute to enhancing our energy security. They're acknowledging that there are changing geopolitical dynamics and they would take into account the environmental impact primarily through safety standards during drilling. So that seems to be, well, we'll drill safely, but we will still drill, I think. And this has been referred to as the Arctic paradox, that they are still having this indirect effect on the Arctic. So we shift forward a little bit, um, looking into 2014, there is an emphasis on economic um, activities and industries, and there is a recognition of the EU as a main consumer of Arctic natural gas. That is a step towards acknowledging that maybe you should reduce that consumption if you really are serious about climate protection. But it is referred to as an important bridge element for a shift to a low carbon economy in the future. So natural gas being less bad than other fossil fuels. 
The 2016 Integrated European Policy for the Arctic puts climate change front and center. So we see the start of the pivot, I would argue. First, geopolitical interests, let's use these resources that are suddenly available. Now, hmm, let's reframe. It's all about climate, priority area number one. We'll talk about oil and gas activities. We're working close with member states. We're working uh, in a multilateral uh, setting, but we're also, again, focusing on accident prevention and environmental control. The EU was quite vague on what it would concretely commit to in terms of reduction in consumption. And that was criticized. And a ban, a proposed ban on oil drilling was actually shot down um, from the European Parliament in 2017. So there wasn't complete traction at that stage. Then in 2020, the language starts to change again. More EU in the Arctic. We need to broaden the scope of our Arctic policy. Perhaps we have a revenge of realpolitik. We need to be prepared for security issues in the Arctic. So it looks like we may be shifting a bit of a pendulum from climate protection front and center, all of a sudden the revenge of realpolitik. What's going on? I'm sure the next presentation will fill this in uh, really nicely you know, from a Russian perspective, what could be triggering the EU's shift in perspective here. I think it becomes clearer in the 2021 EU Arctic strategy. Here, the EU uses very strong, robust language, a geopolitical power. It's a major economic player, according to the EU, even though we've seen that, in fact, it has some more indirect presence only in the Arctic. And um, they have a fundamental interest, this one's interesting, in supporting multilateral cooperation in the Arctic to ensure it remains safe and sustainable, peaceful and prosperous, and also sharing responsibility. So if I look at this, it kind of seems to be a platter of ambitious and competing interests because they see it's a geopolitical power. They have strategic day-to-day -day interest. What are they referring to? At the same time, they would like it to remain sustainable and peaceful. And the EU talks about a shared responsibility. So these are the strands that I'm going to unpack a little with you and, and perhaps we can do together um, in our discussion later on. So two intertwined strands, broadly speaking, we're talking about strategic interest and here Arctic resources and transport routes could transform the region um, and the geopolitical competition. So it could possibly threaten EU interests. So it's a geopolitical necessity. At the same time, the EU is talking about having responsibility for emissions in the Arctic, particularly as regards black carbon. An interesting point for me, who's focused on the EU as a unilateral actor in pretty much all of the rest of its climate change policy, is that suddenly in the Arctic, the EU is all about multilateralism. So to me, I think, where does this come from? I'm looking at the EU's 55 package. I see an abundance of very unilateral measures. And here, all of a sudden, the EU is saying, well, states have primary responsibility for what happens within their territory. but..." Some things go beyond boundaries and could be addressed effectively through regional or multilateral cooperation. And here, of course, is the big one, push for oil, coal and gas to remain in the ground, including in Arctic regions. 
So this is our pivot completely. The EU goes from in 2008 saying, oh, look, resources are becoming available to no one should touch these resources. They should stay in the ground. Hmm, interesting. How did this, how did this happen? Where is this coming from? So I'm not sure how I'm doing the time. Um, all right. But um, we've got five more minutes. So for five minutes, let's, let's unpack a couple of these things and we can do that further later. So some, some queries that come to mind. First of all, I already sort of suggested this, how genuine is the EU's commitment to multilateralism here? If I look at the EU's other policy, it's carbon border adjustment mechanism going to tax producers in other countries for carbon emitted in factories for energy intensive goods. It's emissions trading scheme, which will apply to um, maritime transport, for example, and aviation emissions unilaterally. The EU does not really care that there are other international institutions, the International Maritime Organization, the International Civil Aviation Organization. It's going head on against these organizations to take a unilateral approach. But suddenly in the Arctic, it's all about multilateralism. Could it be it's because the EU is punching above its weight? It can't really deliver in a unilateral strategy. And so now that's why it's calling for multilateralism. Another question which arises, is the EU really taking responsibility for its greenhouse gas emissions in relation to the Arctic? So in principle, if oil, coal and gas remains in the ground, this is great, it will enhance climate protection. But who would actually have to do that? The EU is primarily an importer of extracted oil and gas, 87% of its liquefied natural gas, for example, coming from the Russian Arctic, according to the EU's own strategy. So when it says we should all multilaterally keep these resources in the ground, is it actually not saying you should keep these resources in the ground? And then if we look particularly at black carbon, the EU stresses and acknowledges that 36% of Arctic deposition comes from the EU zone consumption. But what is the EU actually doing about its own black carbon consumption? There are ceilings in black carbon emissions that um, are, for example, included in the Gutenberg Protocol. Is the EU or our EU member states really ambitiously undertaking their targets? Well, that can be questioned. And is this really reflected amongst broader EU climate policy? And then the closing question, the realpolitik, what are the chances of success at getting other states on board? The EU says it's building on existing moratoria that are already there. Maybe we have some players that would be willing to commit. But how good is the EU at steering its own EU and EEA Arctic Council states? And what about the other states? And in particular, I'm looking at Russia. So with that, I think I can also close and hand over to our next presenter. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Natalie. Um, thank you. And I, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, we'll open it up to, yeah, we're all clapping. So we got little signals for, for clapping, which is great. Wait, I want to clap too. Okay. <laughs> There we go. And we have a few minutes for some questions. Would anybody like to ask a few questions before we move on to the next speaker? And Anastasia, I, I, I give it to you. 
Thank you um, so much for such a wonderful presentation. Um, it was very, very interesting. I think, so my question is, um, I know that you're mostly looking at the EU as sort of a unilateral actor, um, but do you think that sort of separate member states could be better at sort of norm shaping in the Arctic? Because a few of them actually have observer status on the Arctic Council, like I think Germany and France at least do. Um, like, could they sort of be the the propeller who actually um, forces other Arctic states to sort of comply with what the EU wants them to do? Or do you think that's not really quite possible? That's a really good question. I can answer it as a lawyer, which is that there's just a competence gap there because um, there are certain observer states just don't have the same power and they also simply don't have the territory there in order to uh, force others to get things done. And because you have sovereignty over your territory, that you just come up against a barrier. And perhaps interestingly, by analogy, um, the EU has a similar problem in relation to aviation emissions at the International Civil Aviation Organization. And it told its member states that it, they should object um, to a proposal that the carbon offsetting scheme, the international one, will be the only offsetting scheme because the EU wanted to keep its own emission trading system as a parallel unilateral measure. And the EU ICAO member states just ignored it. Nobody went ahead and objected. So you can see the EU can be an observer and sort of yell at its member states, but the question, if they're going to vote against their own interests in concrete sitting, not always, not always. Okay, thank you. And uh, others? That's an interesting question. Um, I would say that generally there is always lobbying power at play when the EU develops its legislation. Um, it also has open consultations uh, in when it has this legislative process. Here we're talking about the EU's Arctic strategy, which is um, looking more at its external uh, relations, so it's slightly different. This will be steered directly or indirectly by industry interests. It is no coincidence that the EU is telling is a great net importer of these oil and gas that it's willing to leave in the ground where you don't really see that across other policy areas. So that could indeed be because they didn't come up against the same industry resistance. That's really interesting. I actually was sort of having this game in my head. Could the EU hypothetically create a rule of origin um, that it would not want to import oil and gas that had been sourced in the Arctic? That's something it could do without cooperating with the Arctic states because it could just look at where did the resource come from. And it's also something it could then do with other states if they all agreed, we don't want these oil and gas from somewhere that's so harmful. So hypothetically, there could be some kind of trade cooperation there. They may come up against the World Trade Organization. That would be a whole other world game. Uh, however, yeah, I guess the question kind of is, do states, states are going to pick their battles? Are states really going to support the EU, pushing for a sort of tenuous um, and expensive uh, approach to reducing uh, extraction in the Arctic? I'm not sure. Okay, thank you. And with that, I will move over to Arild and uh, for his presentation. Thank you. Thank you very much and good afternoon, everybody. <clears throat> well, I'm going to talk uh, about Russia and the um, previous speaker already sort of connected to Russia because uh, Russia is a very big part uh, of the Arctic. 
However, uh, even if it's uh, Russia is very relevant in the in, in the context of the EU policy. Uh, what is happening or has happened in Russian art until now does not really connect very much with uh, with uh, with these EU proposals. We can discuss uh, what the impact may be further on, but uh, I will just first try to paint a picture of what is going on uh, right now. So you have that as as a, as, a, as an empirical uh, background and uh, climate policy. Yes, it is coming, but right now, uh, in sort of in the short perspective, the question of international sanctions, uh, for other reasons, is is more um, acute. So let me see if I can get my uh, 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 slide up here. Okay, are you? Do you see it? Now, okay. Over there, it's fine. Okay. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Good. Very good. <clears throat> so, uh, the Russian Arctic. Let me say just a few very sort of basic things, but it needs to be said because there are a lot of uh, of confusions. When we talk about Arctic and Arctic energy, you still somehow often get uh, uh, sort of, sort of announcements that there is a potential for conflict of resources. There's been talk about the resource race. Maybe that sounds a bit old, old, a little bit uh, old fashioned now, but it comes up all the time. Let me just state very clearly, there are no jurisdictional disputes in the Arctic affecting Russia's oil and gas. Whatever you hear, that is a false statement. It's a popular statement, but it's not true. The, uh, the resources we're talking about in the Arctic are safely within national jurisdiction. There are no contested uh, borders. The big one that was contested was in fact with Norway, but that uh, dispute was solved 10 years ago. So uh, for the time being, that is a non-issue. The map uh, you see here is a, the, is a description of the various zones in the Arctic where uh, the coastal states have continental shelves. But that is not the topic now. So what about Russia? <clears throat> Russia is defines itself as an Arctic country. And depending on the definition, a very big part of the Russian territory is considered uh, Arctic. That was, the slide, that was the slide I commented on, in fact, showing the continental shelves of the Arctic uh, uh, Arctic Ocean. And my point is that there are no disputes uh, that are relevant in, in our context. You see this one too? Good. There we are. Well, uh, Russia is an Arctic country and uh, a big part of the country is, is uh, defined as the Arctic zone. And uh, especially with regard to, to natural gas, this is where it comes from. But it's onshore. Um, you see the pipelines uh, coming here from West Siberia, going going westwards, and this is where uh, the EU countries get uh, forty percent of their gas from northern part of Western uh, Siberia. 
So this is, uh, and this is uh, the biggest gas producing uh, region in the world. Also, when it comes to, to oil, it is uh, uh, so at least subarctic, a little bit further south, but definitely in the northern parts of West uh, Siberia. So this is important to know that this is the, this is the source of uh, most of uh, Russian hydrocarbon production, which in, again is the backbone of the Russian economy. Uh, and uh, you always have to keep that in mind when you, when you discuss uh, Russia, also in the context of, of trade, that for Russia, oil and gas is extremely important. Uh, up to 50-60% of export revenues, maybe 40% of uh, budget uh, revenues, state budget revenues. So, uh, in this, in this uh, area, we have had a gas production for, for quite a few years, last uh, 40 years in the, from the uh, high Arctic. But what is, is new is the development of uh, liquid natural gas, which you probably have, have heard uh, mentioned. And that brings in uh, a new dimension. Whereas, uh, as you saw from the previous slide, the pipelines, they, they go uh, east, east-west. It's, it's a fixed infrastructure bringing uh, the gas to, 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 to sort of concrete uh, markets. LNG is, is very different. LNG goes where the market is best. And uh, because it is transported on, on ships. And um, the development that has taken place uh, way north on the Yamal Peninsula over the last uh, 10 years is, has been quite um, surprising. To many, um, nobody, very few at least, had expected that it was uh, possible to complete a big industrial uh, project on time, on budget, in the Russian Arctic, where everything had to be brought in from the outside. But in fact, that happened, and uh, the Yamal LNG project opened in in two thousand and seventeen. And uh, this uh, gas, which is uh, liquefied, is transported on ship, as I said. It can go east or it can go west. Uh, this is, of course, uh, quite interesting because it gives uh, flexibility for the, for the seller. The, the project is operated by a private Russian gas company, Novatech, but with considerable participation of Total from France and Chinese companies. So it's quite interesting and it brings gas both to European uh, buyers but mainly to, to um, Asian markets, either directly to Asian markets or via transshipment in, uh, in Europe. Transshipment is uh, something you do when you transfer the, the cargo from one uh, carrier to to another, and uh, here we also have plans, or at least not not only plans, but uh, concrete projects to do something more, uh, namely to to um, uh, shift uh, to transship 
and liquefied natural gas from the specially built ice-breaking LNG carriers that are used in the Arctic into uh, regular conventional um, LNG carriers, which are less expensive to build and also less expensive to operate. Well, that is maybe a detail, but I think the main uh, message from this slide should have is that uh, LNG brings uh, flexibility in Russian gas exports that the pipeline gas does not have. <clears throat> so, uh, but what about offshore? The Yamal LNG is an onshore project, although it's close to shore. But Russia also has had big plans and expectations for offshore oil development. Uh, Russia has very big oil reserves, resources uh, onshore. But uh, over time, the best fields have been depleted and the fields that are not produced are smaller, more complicated, and more expensive to produce. However, for quite some time, it has been um, undertaken exploration offshore, which indicate that very big discoveries can be made offshore. So Russia embarked on the policy to develop these potential resources. This started for real some 15, 10, 15 uh, years ago. Problem was that uh, the Russian oil industry did not have much experience uh, offshore. At the same time, there was a quite strong nationalistic win, which limited the potential the possibility for foreign companies to, uh, to participate. So quite little happened, even if the declarations were high. In fact, this is the only operating offshore gas field, no, excuse me, oil field offshore in the Arctic. It's in the Barents Sea, in the southeastern part of the Barents Sea, also called the Machora Sea, where a sort of middle-sized oil field has been in production now for the last uh, eight years. Otherwise, it hasn't been possible to start production because of the limitations I said. However, Russia did uh, sort of adjust its policies to some extent. And uh, some uh, 10 years ago, uh, the Russian oil giant Rosneft was assigned given sort of the order to develop Arctic oil together with foreign companies. The foreign companies would be in a minority position, but be very important for these projects. So by 2012, a series of uh, cooperation agreements were made with foreign companies, with uh, the Norwegian company, uh, Statoil, in, uh, in the, in the Barents Sea, uh, and also with uh, any from Italia, in, in Italy in the same area. But most of the, uh, that is the, 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 sec uh, the section you see up in the left uh, uh, upper corner, which is the previously disputed area with Norway on the Russian side. So that was divided with into two cooperation alliances, one with, with Satoil and one with Eni. 
but uh, all the other projects were uh, put into a cooperation arrangement with uh, ExxonMobil from the United States. Huge uh, package of fields. And uh, on this map, which is uh, some years old, you see the, the license areas which were given to, to Rosneft and which Rosneft then turned into cooperation projects, mainly with, with ExxonMobil. So the ambitions were, were high, resource base, uh, promising. But what happened? Well, you know that. 2014. The sanctions that were imposed that year after Russia's annexation of Crimea uh, practically stopped all the big offshore uh, projects. And the um, cooperation arrangements were frozen because of the the sanctions on, on the Russian oil, uh, Arctic, Arctic oil. At the same time, the oil price fell, which also made Arctic offshore look less attractive. That is a very important factor. And not only Russian uh, Arctic uh, oil, but also other expensive offshore Arctic uh, projects. So from being a very, very promising start uh, or very sort of promising outlook, it was stopped almost overnight. Uh, ExxonMobil also formally withdrew from the uh, cooperation arrangements with, um, with uh, Rosneft. Uh, a few years later, Eni and, and, and uh, Statoil, now renamed Ikinor, did not formally break with uh, Rosneft, but uh, the projects are, are frozen. So that means that Arctic offshore in the Russia is not still not uh, a big a big thing. However, uh, Russia wants and has a, as, a, as a policy to, to continue uh, its, its offshore offensive. So let us say a few words about the sanctions. The sanction regime is now quite a complicated issue. Uh, you can find a lot of information on the internet from the US Treasury, for instance, and it's it's quite uh, complicated to, to to understand all the nuances. But I'll talk about some of the main elements. And uh, one of the main packages of sanctions are called sectoral sanctions, and they are affecting the oil sector in, in Russia. But they're specifically targeting Arctic offshore oil. So not all oil, but Arctic offshore oil, prohibiting uh, transfer of technology. Um, that was clearly a, a, a severe blow to, to Russia, which does not have that kind of technology. As a response, uh, Russia has, uh, has uh, declared that it wants to uh, develop more of its own technology, uh, so-called uh, import substitution. To some extent, it has been, has been able to do that, but, but clearly not fully. And clearly not the technology of operating a complicated Arctic projects. So it still is uh, fairly little happening offshore in, in Russia but some exploration is going on. And uh, the exploration activity is partly being undertaken with 
Chinese exploration breaks. They have that possibility. Uh, China is also an interesting, uh, has been seen as an interesting partner in, in further development offshore. But so far, Chinese companies have not been very eager because they also lack the kind of experience that is important to have when you embark on very risky, very costly offshore projects. There have also been uh, financial sanctions, cutting back on the possibility of uh, particular companies to get uh, uh, external credits. That relates both to Rosneft and to the gas company Novatec, which was developing the LNG project on the Yamal Peninsula I mentioned. For, for some time, that created big problems uh, for Novotech, but they managed to, to get around. And again, they managed to get uh, credits from China instead. And as I also said, they managed to complete that project on time. And now they are embarking on the second project, Arctic LNG2, which seems not to have any problems in attracting finance or investors. So in that sense, the sanctions have not had much, much impact. The LNG projects are resilient. They have uh, interested the participants and they have a market so far. We can discuss what the implications of EU policies might have in the future, but so far they are going ahead according to plan. When it comes to the overall picture of Arctic development, and again back to the offshore section, I think the oil price will continue to be extremely important. The official Russian view, which is said in some of in official paper, is that they expect oil price to, 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 to raise again. Well, that is anybody's guess. It's extremely uh, difficult to, to predict oil price, but it's not totally impossible that that will happen. And in that case, we will see uh, if they have the other prerequisites, technological and financial, to develop uh, offshore. I think I'll stop there. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. We're all applauding. So, fantastic. And I want to compliment both speakers for being right on time. So, this is really a great achievement. Uh, for a roundtable discussion. doesn't happen very often. So, thank you. Um, okay, what I would do... Wait, I have to... Okay, I need to change that. Um, yeah. <clears throat> what I'd like to do is uh, ask uh, the students or the audience for questions, some short questions, and then we'll broaden it out, and I'll, then I'll get back to um, uh, the chat with the questions as well. So, Or you could also put a question in the chat, too. So... Can I ask someone to go first with a, a question for Arild? Okay, we'll, we'll pull on uh, Anastasia. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for a wonderful presentation um, and all of the stuff you wrote, because uh, I read quite a bit of it. Um, so I guess my question is moving a bit from the presentation itself. Um, I think what Part of the reason why I was interested in making this roundtable about the Arctic is that I'm interested in um, sort of Russian policy in the Arctic in particular. And the question that's been sort of bugging me um, is that, sort of, as you mentioned, you know, Russia doesn't really have the technology for offshore, and the Arctic currently doesn't really seem to be 
giving Russia as much money as it um, seemed to have thought it would be able to extract from the Arctic. And yet it still sort of chooses between what it thinks about climate change considerations versus drilling more and making more projects, it still chooses to sort of go for more projects. Um, despite the fact that we know, you know, that the Arctic infrastructure might crumble because of the thawing and that it will cost the Russian economy quite a lot of money. So why do you think sort of the calculus of thinking in the Kremlin is like that when we can't really predict oil prices, we don't know what the EU is going to be doing with oil in 20 years, and yet still they seem very committed to sort of overlooking environmental protections and only focusing on sort of markets and selling more oil and gas. Well, uh, <clears throat> there is, uh, there is, in fact, over the very last years, uh, an emerging uh, discussion in Russia about the outlook for for uh, Russia as an oil and gas uh, uh, exporter in light of the energy transition. And it's been a remarkable, I would say, remarkable change in the dis in, in the in the official discourse. Uh, a low carbon strategy was adopted this uh, last fall. Not very concrete on, on policy measures, but at least painting a picture, a direction. And, uh, and, and talking about the, 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 the threat to the Russian economic uh, model, uh, as, you, as you also indicate. So that is, that is a discussion. However, short-term policies are not changing. And they see that oil and gas will remain big internationally for the foreseeable future, and that Russia has a lot to offer. The government is extremely keen on LNG, and I see that as a sort of as a growing in, in, in um, income source, uh, because they feel that the European market may be stagnant. So that is strong support. When it comes to oil, yes, they have these offshore dreams. I think they are sort of not unrealistic, but they are very uncertain. But what they do support is enormous oil development onshore in the Arctic, which I did not uh, mention. Which, if it's uh, being um, carried out, like uh, according to plan, will uh, entail the biggest uh, biggest uh, oil development in Russia since the 1970s. And it will also entail transportation of oil uh, by sea. So, so, so you have a very strong uh, sort of momentum in 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 carrying on with uh, large scale developments. Uh, you may question the the, the as you do. Uh, what are what are the sort of what is the profitability of those projects? Well, uh, when it comes to LNG, they it seems to be quite good investments. The oil projects, even if it's onshore very expensive so again the oil price will determine how this goes if the oil price should collapse this may look like a quite dubious uh, course but i think the russian leadership still they 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 uh, believe that they can at least weather the international developments through the through the 2020s at least okay thank you very much um others 
the volumes you're talking about here are very different. I mean, the the volumes that Russia is supplying by pipeline are, you know, enormous. They are uh, much, 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 much bigger than what you what you sell with uh, uh, as LNG. So, as a base load, uh, pipeline gas is is likely to to continue. But on the margin, uh, uh, LNG is playing in an increasing increasing role. Um, so, uh, the, but but when it comes to the costs, the the assessments I have been seeing regarding Arctic LNG is that it is quite um, they're quite reasonable, in the, uh, because uh, for instance you don't need to worry so much about cooling as you do in other places for natural reasons. There are big transportation costs because you need specially designed, specially built uh, uh, carriers. So the total picture is not that clear. But it seems it is a good, uh, good investment, and the foreign companies like uh, like uh, uh, Total uh, obviously agrees uh, on that. So, well, well that is uh, of course the, a big uh, a big question, uh, and, and it goes a little bit further back to the first session today about the, the dependence on on Russian gas. Yes. Uh, Europe is dependent on uh, on, on Russian gas. Uh, however, <clears throat> it is not as absolute as um, you might think. Uh, Europe has uh, carried out quite a lot of um, diversification policies in terms of uh, uh, exactly establishing LNG terminals. And also a lot of um, uh, connection, interconnections between between the pipeline systems in Europe. So if uh, uh, supplies from one uh, supplier, say Russia, uh, is being reduced, there are opportunities to to replace that gas, but it comes at a cost. Because uh, yes, you can get the gas, but it will be extremely expensive. So it's not an absolute, but it's a, it's it's uh, it, ha it's a, it has a big cost component, and that is what is uh, being felt in Europe right now. Yes, you can get the gas, but you have to pay a lot extra to get it. So um, what it uh, so that probably has implications for further development of the market and uh, infrastructure. But the whole. Um, Situation in Europe is not, of course, only caused by 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 Russia, but it has very much to do with how the energy systems are being transformed in um, in relation to the to the energy transition. And there are, in my opinion, very strong um, uh, paradoxes in that uh, development, uh, because uh, if you want to reduce carbon uh, imprint, you know, you, you can't at the same time also build down gas and uh, and also take out nuclear. It is very difficult uh, to, um, to carry out the policy with so many sort of absolutes that you see in Europe uh, today. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, Ariel, um, I have a follow-up question with that, and it's it's simply on the LNG. So, for future developments, and maybe it follows on that is is the future developments. Okay, we have Nord Stream two, which still needs to to open and, and actually mm -hmm. have gas flowing through it. But in the future, 
it seems this flexibility is really beneficial for Russia. Mm. And do, do you think that they're going to focus much more? And we have sanctions and the current situation. We have a lot of like unknowns, I would say, or knowns. Um, but, but this flexibility with LNG really gives Russia the geopolitical flexibility it wants to still access and to sell into the markets. It, it does, and when uh, and, and, and when the LNG development uh, uh, started, um, it was um, almost on the condition that this gas should not uh, be sold in the European market. It should not compete with pipeline gas, and there has been a lot of internal conflict in Russia about this because, in fact, a lot of the uh, at least in periods, uh, a lot of the gas from Yamal LNG has has ended up in in in, in Europe because uh, the price has been uh, favorable. But the, the, the thinking was that this gas should mainly reach uh, Asia. And that is still the idea. But it gives, that uh, even if it does, uh, it gives uh, both Russia, but also the buyers flexibility. So also from a supply point of view, uh, the existence of several LNG uh, hubs around the world is, is, can be seen as a, as a good thing in terms of energy supply uh, security. But um, seen from Moscow, this is a way of, of uh, reducing the very big dependence on the European market. Mm -hmm. So they can still develop and still sell into Europe, but they also diversify at the same time. Yes, yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And okay, I, I wanted to turn to Natalie and then we'll broaden up. I just. Nelly, maybe you had some reflections or some questions to follow up with with our, what Arald had, had stated already. Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you so much for this interesting uh, uh, presentation. I learned a lot as well. I think I really like the geographical uh, visuals that really help to clarify what is exactly going on. Maps are, maps are always useful. <laughs> yeah, they're really, really useful. And as a lawyer, you know, questions can come up, oh, whose map is this? And did everybody agree on the map? But I think yeah, for this purposes, uh, it's, it's a nice authoritative map. Um, well, I think maybe just to, uh, to catch on to the last thing you said, so Russia is dependent on the European market in, as an export. And when I look at EU policy, I kind of sense also maybe EU is dependent on the Russian supply. So how how do you see that playing out in that, that interdependence going into the future, especially with the sanctions and now the, the gas prices in Europe, etc.? Yeah, well, that, that, that is a big uh, paradox. Uh, and of course, you have some uh, so the, the political consideration on top of the sort of general commercial supply uh, depends. And, and 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 you know the, the you can say that the policy of Europe is uh, is uh, has uh, ambiguities on the one hand being dependent on Russian gas at the, at the other at the same time saying we don't more we don't want to be more dependent uh, saying two, two things at the same time. Um, but I think that uh, going back to your presentation, this uh, this. Uh, this uh, declaration about the possible ban on Arctic uh, uh, hydrocarbons, well, it should be maybe more uh, concretely stated what, what they're after. Are they talking about offshore? Are they talking about oil, my gas? First of all, of course, uh, climate is a global issue. And, uh, and uh, when it comes to emissions, uh, it doesn't matter where it comes from. So in that sense, it's a little bit, uh, uh, yeah, 
why should you single out the Arctic uh, sources from other sources? That can be questioned. But there are also particularly, I know that in the discussion in the EU, you know, there are also particular environmental concerns, which are not climate related, but are related to the conditions for development. And that could be some projects in the Arctic, it also be projects elsewhere that you would single out because they are, uh, are environmentally detrimental. But but there is, if you, if you at, at, uh, at one hand say that 40% of our gas comes from the Arctic, and at the same time say that we should put a ban on, on, on um, on uh, exploring uh, those resources, and then I think uh, it begs the question: Well, if you don't want that gas, don't buy it. Uh, it, 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 it is. The, the, I, I, I feel that the EU policy here is very sort of mm, about declarations and not so very balanced and and and, and realistic. But of course, you can influence some developments, for instance, in terms of uh, uh, limitations of participation on finance and so on. And it can, but it can also uh, influence in terms of as a, as a buyer, but not overnight, definitely not overnight. Mm-hmm. And Arnold, I, I just want to follow up with Natalie's point about... Oh, I'm, oh sorry. I'm muted? No, no, I am. Yeah, yeah. I'm still learning how to use yeah. this. Uh, my, my, my question is a follow-up for, for Natalie's presentation where she talks about how the EU is trying to represent itself in this multilateral institution. And my, my question to you is, what's the perspective of the Norwegian government in this or other governments on these? Sorry, I don't know quite which councils are which, but what's the position of, of, say, the Norwegian government on the involvement of the EU institutions in trying to muscle in on their... Arctic area and, and governance. I think uh, Norway and Russia has, has uh, quite similar positions. In fact, in in that uh, in that issue, that uh, these are uh, issues that uh, belong to the sovereign uh, rights of the of the coastal states. So uh, no direct involvement, but of course at the same time Norway is uh, eager to be seen as a, as a, as compliant and as willing to 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 further the green agenda, but not in terms of sort of sort of specific actions against uh, against uh, developments on its own continental shelf. So there are similarities with with the Russian position in that in that respect. Uh, so state sovereignty still has a role to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, Natalie, did you have more? I completely, I completely agree. I, maybe Norway would be an example of not leading by example, but but sort of yeah, supporting the the nor the narrative. The EU. yeah. The narrative is important. Very, very important. Uh, okay, with that, maybe maybe we'll go to the chat question uh, that Ines had had posted, and then we can. Uh, Ask the students, and and specifically some students who this is your this is your uh, event, and you have some questions. So uh, the qu- question that Ines has in the chat is: How much is the possibility of opening new marine trade routes a conflict of interest for the development of EU Arctic policies? We've kind of spoken about this, but yeah. So what about EU tr- uh, the trade route in in the Arctic it- itself and opening it up even for trade? And and I and I maybe I'll, I'll direct this to Natalie first, 
because um, that was a follow-up while you were speaking. Thank you. I think that this really fits squarely within the Arctic paradox that we were discussing, that it's uh, it's economically very attractive, it's a shorter route it's, that's become available, but on the other hand, oh, it's not so very good for the climate, which we also think is very important. Just as a sort of side note of contextual information, in its Fit for 55 package, the EU has stated an intention to apply its emission trading scheme to international maritime transport, uh, which would also include routes uh, through the Arctic and interestingly would apply to non-EU flagged vessels in non-EU waters. Just putting it out there as an example of EU not being so interested in multilateralism um, and, and that would have an effect also on uh, transport policies through the Arctic. Okay. But this, this can be seen, seen also in another way. And you would also see that uh, you can hear the argument that uh, uh, transportation using the Arctic is more friendly because the distance is shorter. So you have less emissions uh, given certain uh, points of departure and arrival if you go through the Arctic than I mean, if you go south. So, uh, so I think we will hear more of, uh, also from the Russians uh, about that argument. And the sort of fuel will make a difference as well because they've got new um, bans on heavy fuel and, and the kind of emissions that you would have when transporting through the Arctic. Mm. If you did that in a cleaner manner, perhaps yeah, the, yeah. the objections yeah, would be lower. Absolutely. Mm. So is nuclear a nuclear power uh, icebreaker, is that clean or is that dirty energy? Well, that depends, you know, that is, has not been the item of the taxonomy specifically. But of course, uh, for the Russians, that is so. Uh, nuclear technology and power has, does not have a bad name in, in, in Russia, and it's certainly emissions-free. Yes, yes, and especially in comparison to bunker fuel or whatever the ships are, are using. Okay, uh, students and other participants that have joined, so I'm still really impressed with, with uh, how people have heard about the EPRG event and joined in. So we have two participants that have raised their hands, so Akshay. Thanks. That's an interesting one. And in fact, one of the critiques of this new strategy was why didn't the EU distinguish between oil and gas in its keeping oil and gas in the ground, considering that these two are not um, on the same par with each other. So that's something that's quite vague at this stage in, in EU policy. What it does do is distinguish between safety during oil and drilling and the practices and environmental implications um, versus the act of oil and drilling um, as, a, as a source of energy. So perhaps, um, yeah, it's sort of hedging its bets uh, on, on the most responsible approach to doing so. But it does seem to have grouped the two together, even though it considers um, gas to be less polluting than oil. Okay, thank or you. Or climate friendly. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Ariel, did you have any? Yeah, well, when it comes to the taxonomy, you know, it, it is about specific uh, conditions for making it green and it has to do with the way it is produced it has to do with the uh, reinjection of uh, of um, uh, um, carbon dioxide into storage uh, it has to do with uh, combining it with hydrogen so it, it, there are some, several uh, limitations and which are not easy to fulfill uh, as of today but uh, clearly, for instance, for a big gas exporter like Norway, it was good news that this is being considered, although we know that this is uh, the final word has not been said. Uh, talking about accidents, if you talk about 
offshore accidents uh, and uh, or, 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 or transport accidents. It's clear that uh, an accident with an oil uh, rig and an oil tanker would have much bigger uh, environmental effects than an accident with a gas carrier. Or you would have the release of gas, but but you wouldn't have the kind of uh, local pollution that is uh, a threat from uh, from oil production. Mm-hmm. That's a, it's a good point. Thank you very much. Uh, I turn to Bryce for your question. Mm-hmm. Well, I could say something about uh, sure. China. <clears throat> well, the Russian pivot towards Asia started before 2014. And uh, specifically, uh, Chinese investments in Yamal LNG, the first investments were decided in 2013. But uh, it has, China has become more important than it looked at that, at that point due to the sanctions, There's no, no doubt about it. But it's not, so, so you know, the, the role of China in that particular business has been become bigger. Uh, that being said, Beyond the, the LNG projects, China hasn't been so uh, much engaged and uh, I've been, I think, reluctant and for the reasons I mentioned. They don't have the, the capacity and they are not willing to take unnecessary risks. And uh, I would say that the investments they have made in the in LNG have been sound investments from a, from a commercial uh, point of view. So, um, Yes, uh, the sanctions are clearly continuously pushing uh, uh, Russia towards uh, China and the, the trade with China has increased considerably. Uh, China has become the biggest partner, uh, trade partner of Russia. Uh, but it's an uneven relationship. Uh, that is creating some, some concern uh, in, in, in Russia. You said something about uh, the cannery uh, in the mine. What did you exactly mean uh, by that? Uh, other questions. Element to push against the West. Well, uh, Russia is in the Arctic. <laughs> Russia is a big part of the Arctic. So it, it, it's more a question, what is what about China in the Arctic? Uh, and, and, and China realizes it, it's, its way into the Arctic is very much through through Russia. But there are some uh, underlying disagreements about uh, the role of, of, of China. Russia would very much like to see more Chinese investment. China would probably like these investments to be followed with more influence, for instance, when it, com- when it comes to the management of the uh, shipping routes. Uh, and uh, so far, not much has happened in, in practice. There are some 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 different uh, views on that, but China is more sort of at least advocating a more international approach, whereas Russia is very much standing on the on the uh, rule of the coastal state. Okay, uh, thank you very much. This gets really complicated. I love it. <laughs> so we talk about EU, Russia, and China, and these are all. Right, completely different geographic and the United States. And I hold off on that because we have, it's funny enough, we actually have people in the classroom. So, and they, they have questions, but they're not able to raise their hand and, and we don't have a great camera in there. So I want to turn to the classroom and actually actually ask people physically that are together what, what their question is. 
Okay. Maybe I go to Natalie first, and I think this definitely ties in with EU issues and, and the European Parliament like you've written about in your article. Thank you. Um, I, yeah, I think it's um, there's clearly a huge um, societal support for climate protection first. I think you see the, the visions of poor polar bears and, and melting ice caps are scary, and people want um, people will then be inclined to support texts like no extraction uh, from the Arctic, um, and that, that could be some reasons why we see a lot of these declaratory statements in EU policy. But then comes the question: How did you want to heat your house, and how are we going to distribute the costs? And then suddenly people don't want to pay, and so we get this. Um, tension between ideological interests and sort of very immediate, short-term, individualized interests. Uh, and then it becomes quite difficult uh, to see how, how those translate. And I would s suggest that sometimes the EU is eager to please its electorate and also to identify itself, to define itself on the global stage as being very green, but then it kind of indeed gets itself into a bit of a corner with how it's going to realize that, especially in the shorter to medium term, which is something I think that um, also came up. We can maybe uh, think about the longer term, but what are we going to do if we suddenly stop drilling tomorrow? Yeah, and the price, look what happens now, right? The price is already yeah. super high. Super high. In the Netherlands, we this is ridiculous. In the Netherlands, we had to stop drilling in the, the north of the country, in Groningen, because of the earthquakes that were being caused. We're now highly dependent on um, imported gas, in particular from Russia. And because the price is going to be so high, even though the Netherlands has clear climate goals, the entire of the Netherlands is getting a subsidy, including us, 400 euros, on the increase in your gas bill this year. Wow. Yeah, because we can't afford the sudden increase in our gas bill. And we don't have an alternative. We don't have a short to medium term strategy. We just have long term ideals. Yeah, yeah. It goes right against the EU kind of competition idea for residential home. And not even to mention the Fit for 55 plans. Right. And or the Dutch own plans in the very famous Urgenda judgment in which it was found to have not enacted enough domestic climate change policy. So it's a bit embarrassing. Mm -hmm. So Roxanne, your, your question, we didn't hit on it, but it's, it's so essential to this discussion. Absolutely. Uh, Ariel, did you have anything to say on this? Well, I think Natalia just said what was important. This is not really an issue related to what's going on in Russia. Mm -hmm. Good. I'll just say, sitting in Hungary, we're all fine here because the essentially the South Stream corridor has been opened up. So we get all the gas from, from Russia on a long-term contract, and the price has been capped for, I don't know, how many years now? Ten years? So my gas price is the same. So... Uh, it just shows, depending on the country and what kind of economic system you adopt, uh, competition or you stay with this old Russian system, Soviet system, how, how things can go in the future even. It's funny how times change and competition meant to drive down price, but now it's actually quite high. And so the governments, Italy too is subsidizing, many other go governments in the EU are subsidizing consumers. They have to because of the pushback. Um, okay, sorry, there's a second question. Mm -hmm. Okay, maybe, Ariel, I'll give that to you first. Well, yes, uh, uh, well, the Arctic is, is, is a very big, uh, hardly a region, it's the Arctic, different sub-regions. One thing that is very important, uh, 
big parts of the Arctic is, is fisheries. Very, very big uh, fisheries, uh, not least in the western part, in the in the Barents Sea, which is an important supply also to, to, to Europe. Uh, if you talk about Arctic uh, more broadly along uh, and onshore, yes, uh, the Arctic has also other uh, natural resources, minerals, which can be developed, which are developed, which can be developed. And this is uh, an ongoing uh, operation uh, to both, both to explore and, and to develop resources, not only in Russia, but also in northern parts of, of Canada and, and in, in, in Alaska. Oil and gas, of course, has been extremely uh, big and, uh, and is big, but there are other, other uh, alternatives. You also have to keep in mind that the Arctic is not extremely heavily populated. Most of the projects, big projects we're talking about, are based on labor that is being brought in from from the south. The indigenous uh, local populations they they are mostly engaged in in uh, in uh, hunting, fisheries, and and some other uh, activities. Okay, great. And so, yeah, when we talk about the environmental impact, right, it's not just what, what's being extracted, how it's being extracted, and then the impact on the immediate environment and the global environment. So, which I'm trying to wrap things up, but it really demonstrates the importance of understanding what's going on in the Arctic. It's not just the, the melting that's going on there, but actually the extraction that's going on there, too, that, that makes it super important. And just before we conclude, just because this is about current topics in energy policy, Arild, I have one last question for you, and this is about the impact of the sanctions. Um, and it was a defining moment in the exploration of, uh, from 2014, um, the impact on Russia's ability to explore for oil and gas, or, or extract at least for the oil, uh, for the offshore, as you mentioned. And I'm just wondering about, and maybe you don't know, but kind of if, for example, Russia decides to go into Ukraine and if there's more sanctions, do you, do you think that there's going to be a major impact or these, these ways that Russia's learned how to get around the sanctions can actually help Russia continue to develop its oil and gas sector? Well, uh, uh, certainly that is one of the possibilities of being flagged that there will be uh, more comprehensive sanctions that could hit other parts of the of the Russian economy. But uh, when the sanctions were introduced in 2014, they were specifically uh, avoiding uh, the gas and avoiding anything that could harm the gas supplies to Europe. Question is now if there is a broader uh, sort of economic war how that will also impact uh, Russian gas exports. That's anybody's uh, guess. It's very, very dangerous and, and difficult uh, scenarios. But we know, for instance, that we heard the other day that, you know, that uh, Qatar has been requested to step up gas supplies to Europe. Uh, and that is probably a way to see if there are other sources that could be mobilized if the Russian it's the Russians should should decide to cut the supplies. Okay, thank you. Uh, sorry, Natalie, any views on that? I think indeed the the last point um, is is essential as well. I mean, it's one thing to want to, to place a sanction, but what are you then doing to your own energy supply? We're more worried about if the Russians should decide to cut the energy supply. 
Okay. All right. Well, I definitely want to say first before we go, Anastasia Postnova for helping out and Roxana Bucata. They really helped bring everything together. So thank you. And certainly for Ariel and Natalie for making the time, the time spent preparing to come and sharing their expertise. As you see, it was an excellent event. And I want to thank all both the students that prepared and also people that came for our EPRG event. So thank you very much. And with that, I'll, I'll conclude. So thank you all. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting-edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make it. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 webpage or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.